You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thomas McNamee is the author of The Grizzly Bear, Nature First, Keeping Our Wild Places and Our Wild Creatures Wild, A Story of Deep Delight, and The Return of the Wolf to Yellowstone. His newest book is Alice Waters and Shea Panisse, The Romantic, Impractical, Often Eccentric, Ultimately Brilliant Making of a Food Revolution. Thank you for joining me, Mr. McNamee. Delighted to be here. One thing I have to ask is this is a, a real shift for you in terms of what you write. You've written a lot of nature books before. Why did you make this shift into writing about history and food? It wasn't as big a shift as you might think because I've been involved not only with, with writing about nature but actively involved in nature conservation and in particular Yellowstone, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And there you have a, an immense collection of federal protected lands, national forests, national parks and whatnot. And generally speaking, conservationists have focused on these all around the world on reserves that are meant to conserve nature and conserve species. But in fact, if you look at small farms anywhere around the world, they're among the most species-rich places on the planet. And when industrial agriculture arrives with its monocrop, its chemicals, its fertilizers, its brutalization of the ecosystem, all that biodiversity disappears. And I thought, well, there's a way that this virtuous eating stuff can tie into the mission of my life, which is, you know, nature. And as you started writing this book, you had to really, ch did you have to change your writing and research methods? It's a different ballpark, I would think. It's very different because uh, there are so many voices, so many people. When I've interviewed the first person I talked to about this was a guy who's been a friend of Alice's since before Chez Panisse. He's been on the board of Chez Panisse ever since it began. He's a, his wife was the pastry chef for 26 years, and he's just as close to the story as anybody has ever been. His name is Charles Shear. He lives in Sonoma. And uh, I spent a day just listening to Charles, and I was thinking, oh, my God, I can't do this. I said, how am I going to get through this? What's the big, first of all, what's the main challenge? He's just too much information. And it's absolutely true. And luckily my agent, David McCormick, gave me an idea, which was to read a book called Edie, by, about Edie, a biography of Edie Sedgwick, who was a member of the Andy Warhol crowd back in New York in the 70s. She died of a drug overdose, of course. Uh, and this book was written, not really written, but assembled by Gene Stein and, um, I forgot the other guy. Uh, and the, the entire book is made up of quotations. There is no narrative. And I thought, there's my ideal. If I can tell Alice's story in the voices of her friends and enemies and herself and her exes and her daughter and so forth, and, I, and if I can mold that into a coherent quasi-narrative, I'll have succeeded. And so uh, there's actually, I didn't do that. It's not really just a quilted book, a book quilted out of other people's words. Uh, there's plenty of my writing in there. But I'm much less present. Uh, I don't think I use the first person particularly. Um, I tried to stand behind, like the director off stage, and let the players, the principal players, 
occupy center stage. So was that the only change to your writing style, or were there other changes to your writing style that you had to wrestle with? Well, when I, I first had this great idea for an opening, it was going to be about 60 pages, and it was this, this sort of rapturous thing where you start seeing the earth from space and closer and closer and closer until finally you're on the front steps of Chez Panisse. And I, it was these, there were these long, ornate sentences filled with fancy words and long phrases interpolated. And uh, it was kind of crazy. It was like, you know, a, a schizophrenic who can't stop talking in a way. And I submitted this to my publisher who said, Tom, are Earth to Tom, uh, what are you doing here? This is nuts. You can't do this. And then the cruelest, toughest part of all, I have a very tough-minded publisher, tough-talking publisher. She said, this book is not about you. It's about Alice Waters. Try to keep that in mind. <laughs> and so I started again, and uh, again on my agent's advice, because I was really at sea. I didn't, I've always, they were saying, well, you know, it's, you haven't found the right voice. And I thought, well, I've never worried about finding a voice. I just sit down, I start to type, and it comes out in my voice. So I thought, well, I've got to find another one. What's that? So I started writing very, very plainly, you know, in a sort of one blocky little sentence followed by another and just almost repertorial in style. And I was just dead on the page. And finally, after it took about a year just to get this book up and going, get past a decent page one. Somehow I found the way it needed to sound. And the way it needed to sound was a little bit like Alice herself. So it could be scattered, it, it could, which she is, and it could be digressive, which she is. But it had to be candid and emotional and, um, uh, and draw you in, which is Alice's great trick with the world, that she puts her hand on your arm and she stares into your eyes and she captures your soul. <laughs> it's a little scary. Uh, I actually think the other thing you've done quite well too, the other part of Alice that you, you've captured is her kind of iron will in, in that there's a the through line to this book is very powerful. It is, and uh, not only does she have it herself, she can imbue other people with it. She gets people to want to do things that she wants them to do as though they'd thought of it themselves. And once she's set on a thing, it pretty well comes to pass. She just doesn't quit. One thing that, that I thought was really interesting, and I hadn't thought of this myself, is how much the way we eat has changed from before Chez Panisse and after. And this was really the the linchpin, the, the hinge point uh, of an entire revolution of American cuisine. Absolutely it was, and it continues to be. Um, there, there were a few sort of indigenous American cuisines like New Orleans and New England and um, the Pennsylvania Dutch, but we never really had something that could be called a, a fully American cuisine. And, of course, what Chez Panisse did at the beginning people called California cuisine. But Alice's point in more recent years has been to say, look, we can all do this. It's just a matter of having beautiful, fresh produce picked at its peak of ripeness, 
grown organically, nearby, not transported very far. Same thing with the animals, you know, humanely treated animals, humanely killed animals. Um, all these things treated with respect and with simplicity. I mean, Chez food is, so, some people who come from Paris, say, or New York, uh, who eat there, they say, you know, $85 and this is, I got a piece of chicken? Well, they're not paying attention when they say this sort of thing. I mean, it's, the fact is it's probably the best piece of chicken you ever put in your mouth um, because it's, it's a chicken that was raised like a prince uh, and very simply prepared, usually. Her early life is, is really pretty interesting. For somebody who proved to be a, a, a revolutionary, she was brought up in, you know, the the picture postcard, post-World War II America. Well, she was right on that, uh, at that historical moment 40 years ago right now, uh, the spring and summer of 1968, when it seemed as though the world was changing in almost every way overnight. And she had been a very ordinary American teenager. She loved clothes and dancing and boys and riding around in convertibles. And she went initially to the University of California at Santa Barbara, which at that time was really kind of a party school. And she was drunk all the time, and she seemed to have had a great many boyfriends. And uh, was absolutely headed nowhere in her life. It was, it was a completely purposeless life until this friend of hers, actually a friend who had been a friend of hers in high school in Los Angeles, grabbed hold of her one day and said, listen, Alice, we've got to get you out of here. She's already been thrown out of her sorority, by the way, for never coming home on time. And this was Eleanor Bertino, and Eleanor basically took Alice by the hand. And this happens throughout Alice's life. When, when she's in need and things aren't going right, somehow some angel, some deus ex machina, pops out of the machinery and rescues her. In this case, it was Eleanor, and she said, we've got to go somewhere serious. They went to Berkeley. Alice was swept up in the politics that were the defining atmosphere of Berkeley in the 60s, late 60s, of course. And then when things got really hot and it looked as though the campus might be shut down and the cops were going to be beating people, the protesters, she skedaddled off to France. And that was the second big change in seriousness. Uh, she had been politically serious and intellectually serious at Berkeley. And in France, she discovered that it was possible to be equally serious about food and also have a lot of fun without there being any conflict between that seriousness and the fun. And, and that's where she developed, I think, the, the, the aesthetic that carried her through up to this day, which is, a, a, I guess, a paying attention to details. The, the, the very, the most, of the details, plain details, the most important part of our lives. She's a fanatic. I mean, you, if she's at the restaurant, and she's not there that much anymore, but if you see her walking through the dining room, she's straightening every piece of silver, She's holding every glass up to the light. She runs her fingers along the moldings on the side, and if she runs into a particle of dust, she's immediately calling somebody over, get take care of that dust. That should never have been there. Um, she tastes every dish that comes out of the kitchen downstairs in the main restaurant and from the cafe upstairs, and she is not shy about criticism. In fact, generally speaking, she criticizes everything that she tastes. And 
for the most part, the cooks are not resentful the way you would expect, you know, from a creative person whose whose creation has just been criticized, demeaned even, because they think about what she said, and she said, well, you know, this should have lemon juice instead of vinegar. It's too sharp. And they think, well, you know, Alice is right, because she has a super palate, and I think probably physiologically, I haven't had her examined this way, but I, she has more taste buds in her mouth. And then she certainly has more taste receptors in her brain. And so she can taste things and smell things that other people can't. It's a physiological talent. This is a really interesting talent. It's, you know, it's a superpower, kind of like something out of the, the, the Marvel comics in a way. And in fact, I know we've just learned, scientists have just determined that the people who can taste wine better do indeed have more taste buds on their on their tongue. Could you talk about how this palate, this, for all her talents and all her intelligence and and iron will, she still didn't lead a a straight arrow life, starting out planning and rocketing to the top. Did she? <laughs> Far <laughs> from it. Chapinis on the night it opened was chaos. It remained chaos. It nearly went broke in the first two weeks. After the first two weeks of operation, they were able to pay the staff a grand total of uh, 10% of what they were owed. Uh, money leaked out in all directions. Wine leaked out in all directions. Alice's sister says, we never thought she could run anything because we used to say when she was a kid, she spends money like waters. If they send her a, a, a $10,000 line of credit credit card in the mail, she thinks she's got 10000 bucks and she goes and spends it. Uh, she gives away money. She gave away meals. She gave away bottles of champagne. She was a hippie. Um, stayed up late, danced, smoked dope, kissed boys, etc., and uh, really led a true 60s uh, sybaritic life. And that's not particularly uh, uh, helpful to building a business, like according to a quote, business plan. She'd never heard of a business plan in her life. And she had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the latter 20th century. For example, her father, who had been a businessman, a very successful one, said, Alice, you've got to get computers because you've got to be able to keep up with the money. That's why you're not making any because it's all dribbling away and you don't have know where it's going. And she said, I hate computers. And her dad said, Alice, you've got to have computers and you've got to have an integrated accounting system. You need a manager. And she goes, oh, okay. And so and to this day, the computers at Chapinese are in wooden boxes. You have to lift a wooden lid to enter what you've just, the order you've just taken if you're a waiter. Um, and Alice's father did hire a manager. It didn't work out at all because... She'd sneak in on weekends and grab checks out of the checkbook and go buy $2,000 worth of white truffle, truffles. Could you talk about how this kind of uh, erratic, these erratic flights of, of fancy are, are really, I think it's an integral part in the whole social aspect because this is, book is fairly juicy when in the gossip realm and in, in looking at the personal lives. Uh, could you talk about how that is part uh, of Chez Panisse, how it actually, I think, makes it uh, a better place to eat. Maybe it does. 
uh, I realized early on that this could not just be a book about Alice Waters because Alice Waters and Chez Panisse are coextensive. There are two aspects of the same organism. Uh, Chez Panisse is a social organism made up of the people there, and the way they relate to one another has always been different from almost any other restaurant or any other business. They're friends, sometimes lovers. They're very polite. They're very cooperative. They always help each other out. If somebody has is overwhelmed on one job, somebody runs over and takes care of that for them. And Alice has always uh, driven that, that, that sort of ethos of sharing and cooperating and politeness. It also has engendered naturally an emotional cohesiveness. People become very close to one another in these, in these circumstances and sometimes, you know, fireworks result. There was a, the, the uh, wine room. Uh, they often stayed late. It seemed to take them a long time to shut down the restaurant after it closed at night, early days. And the wine room developed a uh, notorious reputation because it was very quiet after the restaurant had closed and you could lock the door. <laughs> One of the things, when you're telling me about all the, the, these people in this organism, this is a lot of oral history to compile, to, to interview, to interleave. Tell me about your interviewing. I mean, how many years did you spend doing interviews for this? And do you have any idea how many you did? Yes, I did about 130 interviews with people who weren't Alice. And I did... 50-some-odd with Alice. Sometimes they were short. Sometimes they went all day. Sometimes it was psychoanalysis. Sometimes it was dentistry. Um, and more and more and more information came. And what Charles Shear had said to me that first day kept coming back to me. My God, it's too much information. Because everybody I'd go see would say, well, have you talked to Jean-Jacques Quelquechose? And I'd say, not only have I not talked to Monsieur Quelquechose, I don't even know who he is. And they'd say, well, you can't write this book unless you talk to Jean-Jacques. I mean, Jean-Jacques and Alice, you know. Um. One, I, I really love the early days uh, of Alice and, and David Goins when, when they were first uh, doing the, the illuminated recipes. What, what a, a fabulous idea. Dave is still very close to the restaurant. He still designs a lot of the posters and menus and things like that. And David is as dedicated an artist as I've ever seen in my life because he is absolutely meticulous. He has a, very, a style that you can identify from the moon. And uh, he was Alice's boyfriend at a very critical time in her life when she was... Uh, back from France, I guess, and sort of at loose ends, she had this rough idea that she wanted to have a restaurant or, or some sort of gathering place it was going to be like these French movies that she'd seen, particularly the Marcel uh, Pagnol trilogy set in, on the Marseille waterfront. And um, David was a person who saw things in a straight line, knew how to get things done in a sort of A, B, C, D fashion, and he gave that intelligence to Alice and she's never really been able to adopt it quite but I think David gave her a sort of spine and and a, a sense that purpose could be disciplined it didn't just have to be passion unleashed 
one of the, the big challenges that she faced right off the bat was getting the ingredients. And this is, is it's almost inconceivable to us today, especially if you live in California, to the, the problems she had finding the ingredients and, and also subjecting them to her own preternatural palate. Exactly. First of all, she and her 50-some colleagues, I mean, she hired a million people to start the place. None of them knew that there was such a thing as wholesale restaurant supply. They tried, they had to go to the grocery store. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, of course, in every grocery store in America, there was one duck, a Long Island duck, frozen solid. And Alice wanted fresh ducks. Finally, she figured out that in Chinatown in Oakland, you could get freshly, gr- freshly killed, never frozen, beautiful ducks with all their innards. And so that was one source. But it meant that this little red car that she was rattling around the Bay Area in had to go to Oakland for the ducks and over here for something else. And then, of course, she wanted to have this, uh, this kinds of salad greens that she'd had in France, the mesclun. Well, nobody grew those. So she started growing them in her own backyard. She started dragooning members of the staff of Chez Panisse and her friends into growing things that she needed. She wanted wild strawberries, which actually can be cultivated. Uh, so she made somebody grow wild strawberries. And in fact, through the years, uh, as that discipline has grown and, and she has wanted more and more exotic ingredients, uh, they actually have, uh, the company has, has lent money to farmers to get started so that they can grow what Chez Panisse needs. And Chez Panisse, I think, has a history of being more closely tied to farmers and uh, animal husbandry people and fishermen than any other restaurant. And I think that is part of the uh, most profound change that's underway now in that restaurants are taking on a social role as messengers on behalf of agriculture, good agriculture. One of the things that that she did was to help create a a, a number of of now famous chefs. And the the first one was a a man named Jeremiah Tower. Tell me about Jeremiah Tower. Did you talk with him? Oh, yeah, several times. I went to Mexico to see Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a trip. Uh, he he wrote a book called California Dish, which I recommend to anybody who likes snide gossip and doesn't care if it's all true. Uh, Jeremiah claimed to have been raised by an aborigine in Australia, but then he was an English aristocrat, and but he'd also worked with the head waiter at the Savoy in London. He had this indeterminate uh, English Empire accent. He had great waves of red hair. He wore silk scarves. He'd gone to Harvard and fallen in with a, a gay crowd there that were, who all considered themselves sort of Oscar Wilde reincarnate. And he uh, was an incredibly good cook, but also undisciplined until he came to Chez Panisse, and he'd, he'd never really been able to hold a job. He came out here to the West Coast to, to get a job as an architect. He'd gone to Harvard Architecture School as well, uh, and he wanted to build a semi-underwater floating pavilion for the next Hawaiian World's Fair, the next World's Fair that was going to take place in Hawaii, 
Well, except that there wasn't any such World's Fair ever going to take place. And so he was laughed out of these architects' offices and, and more or less sleeping on friends' floors and starving until somebody hooked him up with Alice and he went and cooked uh, a few audition meals. And the famous episode is that uh, he went over to a big vat of soup in the restaurant kitchen and tasted it and said, oh, and poured in some white wine and some salt. And, and Alice tasted it and said, oh, you've done it. It's magic. It's just magic. Their relationship was a tempestuous one, to say the least. Sort of, um, well, like all the classic couples from literature rolled up into one. Uh, they loved each other. They hated each other. They did everything together. They would sit up until 3 in the morning drinking $100 bottles of champagne, multiple bottles, studying these ancient French uh, recipe books from the 17th century. And Jeremiah would say, well, why can't we bring cinnamon in and, and uh, cloves and things into uh, a lamb stew and we'll make a, we'll make a medieval lamb stew. And Alice would say, yes, right, and, and didn't they usually have fruit in those lamb stews, like dried fruit? And Jeremiah would say, exactly. We've got to get some perfect dried green-gauge plums. And, and so the, this chemistry was, a, it was the, boil, the pot was constantly boiling, and the emotional intensity between them was so extreme that it really couldn't last because Jeremiah was the kind of person who had to be ultimately in charge. And Alice is the kind of person who has to be ultimately in charge. So it was a formula for an eventual breakup. And it was a bitter one. One of the things that interested me was how fast Chez Panisse went from a, a kind of disorganized hippie restaurant on the corner in Berkeley to national and international uh, prominence. It was four years to the gourmet uh, review and, and eight years to being named, you know, the culinary uh, paddle, panel. It, it, it's amazing. It was amazing. It, and it reflects simply the fact of Alice's fanatical dedication to doing it in the best possible way every day, no matter what it costs, no matter how many people it takes, no matter hard it is, how hard it is, no matter if you have to switch all the ingredients around at five minutes to six, but five minutes before the restaurant opens, and reprint the menus, and change all the flowers, and do all these crazy things that she does ceaselessly. And so when people came, as they did anonymously, to the restaurant, and these were people for the most part who really, really did know food very well, like the, um, the critics for Gourmet and, and the New York Times, and they were just blown away. And they said, you know, this restaurant is not like anything that there has ever been before. I mean, it's, it's nutty. It's not very pretty. Uh, the, the dishes don't match. The staff have sometimes kind of a bad attitude, or they seem preoccupied because they're stoned, uh, which they were a lot. Uh, but the food is unbelievable. The food is unbelievable. And so it went. And so they had to then live up as a business to that great praise, and that was hard. In, now here we are in, in the 21st century, and what the, the, the core of, of what shaped Panisse and what has driven it for all these years, for more than 30 years, 
it has now become a, a, a part of our culture, and this is reflected in uh, what's on the back, I think, of her, you know, latest book, The Art of Simple Food, which is, you know, fresh, local, organic, high quality. That's what that's what goes into our food, and that's something we can do, and sustainable. Th this is a really interesting development that she's uh, started to take this uh, a more global look at, at yeah. what we're doing, it, and it leads right back into your uh, interest in the ecology, doesn't it? Yes. I, th I think when she started the uh, edible schoolyard in Berkeley at the Martin Luther King Middle School, it was just a one-school project. But somewhere in the midst of it, she realized, wait a minute, why can't we replicate this? Why are children all over America eating frozen processed food that arrive in g giant blocks off trucks where everything is processed and corporate and I mean, our own children have have lost the ability to know the difference between good and bad food. And moreover, they they don't seem to have any manners. They don't seem to know how to sit down at the table together. Can't fold a napkin. They can't do a knife and fork right. And why don't we see if we can do something about this? And so, lo and behold, Alice now has as her mission to change the way children eat. Period. You know, starting with the United States, but ultimately, a lot of places. We've been speaking with Tom McNamee. He's the author of Alice Waters and Shea Panisse, The Romantic, Impractical, Often Eccentric, Ultimately Brilliant Making of a Food Revolution. Thank you for joining me, sir. It was a great pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.